Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Uh, let's open up to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11. We didn't quite finish it last time, so we're doing the seventh trumpet, closing that out, and then we hit chapter 12 next week. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was Zoe life, and that Zoe life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so begins the Gospel of John as he introduces the story of Jesus through the language of Genesis 1. In other words, his message is that Jesus has come as the creator of the new creation, and he uses the language from Genesis to model that, and then to show his point, he has Jesus do, of course he did many miracles, but John limits his record to seven because he parallels the seven creative days in Genesis 1, showing that Jesus has come, and seven times he is doing works that fix a broken creation. We call them miracles. John called them signs. And we see from the very beginning that this apostle John and his vision of Jesus and the Jesus that he got to know was one that's here to fix the world and to fix broken humans and to restore all things to be living to the fullest potential that God gave them to live in. This is the same John who writes the vision of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. And there have been glimpses into this new creation God. But tonight we come to a section with the seventh trumpet that actually emphasizes it quite a bit. So as that tantalizing little preview is done, I need to now get into our technical aspects for you nerdy Revelation scholar geeks and then we will look at that a little bit at the seventh trumpet. So I'm going to read to you uh, from the bulletin because I wrote that little paragraph, which I can't summarize it any quicker than this. So this is our contextual background to the book. eighty ninety Apostle John writing. They call him the King of Kings and Son of God. Worshippers hail him as their Lord and Savior. Messengers herald the good news of his ascension. His reign promises global peace and prosperity, and in his decree reside the power of life and death. His kingdom is said to be eternal. His name is Caesar Domitian. But the church calls him Christ Jesus. Two kings, two kingdoms. Caesar will not allow it. So Revelation examines that tension with visions altering between monsters and men, worship and war, prophets and prostitutes. But when the dust settles, only one remains the true king of kings. And there you have it, a minority movement giving a leader who is nowhere around because he's ascended into heaven, the titles that Caesar, king of the world, has given to himself. This is a spiritual battle. 
And so the church is in a little bit of turmoil. It's going to get much worse after Revelation's written, not because of it, but after it, nonetheless. John is a political exile on the island of Patmos, political in Caesar's worldview. In the Christian worldview, he's a martyr, in a sense. He's suffering in exile for the gospel. He's being persecuted. And he, there on the island, gets this vision of Jesus. The best time for Jesus to reveal himself is when we're in trouble, when we feel remote, when we feel cut off, when life as we once knew it is completely interrupted and we are sent on our island away from the comforts and familiarity and control that we once had. And there you are, not knowing what's going to happen. There's insecurity, there's concern, there's worry. And John, in this place, Jesus reveals himself. And gives him a vision and says, give this to the churches, John. The church needs to hear this too because hard times are coming. So this is what we get in Revelation is the vision. And as all visions are, they are difficult to put into language. Because the visionary, the one who's given the vision, sees and feels in the soul. But then you have to put this into material writing on material paper and give it to others and somehow have them see what you saw. Things that are too marvelous for human language and for earthly figures, it's pretty hard to do. Which is why when we come to Revelation, we're struggling to make sense of some of the terms and images and ideas. So at best, what we can do is take what John does, see the picture, and let the picture overwhelm us. Sometimes we underwhelm the vision by trying to too closely identify this matches with this, and that's going to happen here. And we kind of turn Revelation from a glorious vision of Jesus into a handy-dandy little Thompson's map of the future you can fit in your back pocket. So... This is what we see in Revelation, a lot of interesting imagery. Now, real quick to summarize where we are, chapter 1 through 3 is our setting. John's in exile, he's over these churches, he gets a vision, he writes letters to these churches with the vision attached to the end of these letters, sends them out. Chapter 4, the vision begins. John is ushered up into heaven where he sees the vision of the throne and all of heaven and these marvelous creatures which in concentric circles are surrounding this throne in praise and adoration. And then finally he, well not finally, but quite throughout the vision, he keeps going back to the one who sits on the throne. His phrasing, the one who sits on the throne to emphasize to a worried church that God is not nervous, he's not pacing, he is in full control, he is seated on the throne. And then we see the vision of the Lamb, Jesus, in visionary picture. Jesus, as a slaughtered lamb, comes and takes a scroll from the one who sits on the throne. He opens up the scroll, seven seals to open it up. One by one, he opens them. We see uh, things happening upon the earth as he opens each one. And then he opens the seventh. And in chapter eight, trumpets, seven angels with trumpets come forward and they begin to blow. One by one, the seven angels blow their trumpets. More things happen upon the earth. And then we come finally to our passage Chapter 11, verse 15, in which the seventh angel is about to blow the seventh trumpet. Now, what is this scroll that started this whole thing? We decided, quite humbly, because we don't know anything for certainty in this area, right? 
it seems that to me, this is the scroll uh, sealed seven times like Roman documents were. Legal documents were sealed six to seven times in which usually they were wills or testaments. So I'm a rich guy. I'm going to die. I want my inheritance to go to my son. So we write that and then seven witnesses come. We seal the document. And then when I die, they can open this. The, the, the witnesses come. We open the seals and the scroll now gives me the inheritance, uh, the son, the inheritance. That's the idea. Now, so if this is indeed that, then what we see is a title deed to the earth. And it, the one who sits on the throne is holding it because humanity forfeited it. Adam and Eve, given rulership over the creation, lost it. He now holds it, waiting for the right one to come and reclaim it. Jesus, who perfectly obeyed the Father and went to the cross in such obedience, comes now as a lamb slaughter to take that from his hand. He is the one worthy. He takes a scroll. All of heaven erupts in adoration of the lamb, and then he begins to open it. And we, when he opens the seventh seal, remember, this is a royal thing. The king of the universe is holding the scroll. His son comes forward to take it from him. He's claiming kingdom. He's claiming the earth and he's going to bring heaven and earth together once and for all for the way it was all meant to be a perfectly charmed, charmed, a perfectly healed uh, creation. I think I was mixing uh, harmed and healed and it came out charmed. Um, That kind of a creation. And so he opens it up and what do you expect? Everyone wants to know what's in the scroll. What does it say? So he opens it And as any king who's about to give a royal pronouncement, you don't just blubber it to people that aren't paying attention. You command attention. The king's about to speak. Let all the earth be silent. So the seventh seal is opened. What do we read in 8 verse 1? We read that there's silence in heaven. Seven angels come forward. They blow the trumpets because the trumpets are announcing to the citizens of the earth The king is about to read the royal pronouncement. Pay attention. So now the seventh trumpet is going to blow, and that means we're going to hear the royal pronouncement from the lips of the Son of God, what the scroll says. So let's read. uh, 11 verse 15. So the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, This is the royal pronouncement. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, New King James adds, and who is to come, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant seen within his temple. There were flashes and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. What does this mean? 
This is the problem way back when I first started reading Revelation. Years and years ago. (laughs) I had this problem with this passage. First of all, uh, you see in verse 15, the pronouncement, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We mean the kingdom of this world has become. We, we still have chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 to go through until Jesus comes to the earth. So what does it mean that it's done, that it's happened? Um, we also... It, it speaks as if this is past tense. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged. This is verse 18. The dead to be judged, that's the end of time. But we're still in the very middle of Revelation. How is this the end of time? How is the judgment come already? And for him to destroy the destroyers of the earth. So these were the things that I struggled with because here very early on, we haven't even gotten to the bold judgments. And if you're not familiar with Revelation, just ignore these words. You're like, what is that? But we haven't even gotten to a whole set of judgments yet. How is this the end? So when Jesus comes, is he going to come? And once he comes to the earth, the earth that the creator is supposed to heal, is he going to start like striking things and making things even more chaotic? That's not very good news. People would rather have Caesar rule over them than that. So the problem is, why does it sound like the seventh trumpet announces the end of time, but we still have half the book to go through? So that's the problem that I've had in reading this. Well, it turns out that I wasn't the only one to struggle with that. Uh, there's actually tons and tons of ink spilt about this. So here's the question. <laughs> is the seventh trumpet and this announcement the end? In other words, could you kind of pretty much nicely say, and they all lived happily ever after at the end of chapter 11? Well, there's, of course, two views on this. So the first is, that Revelation is a sequential book. In other words, it tells the visions of what's going to happen in chronological order. So chapter 7 follows chapter 6. Chapter 9 follows chapter 8, right? You've got a sequential order. Therefore, chapter 11 is in the middle of the sequence. Chapters 12 and 13 are after, and so forth. You go down the line, right? So, again, another example is the seven seals happen at once, then the seven trumpets at once, then the seven bowl judgments at once, and then Jesus returns. Sequential makes sense. It's just it's stacked up. It's a natural way to look at it. You're like, oh, of course, it's all going to happen like this. The other view is the parallel. Rather than sequential, you have this happens But then this part of Revelation is happening at the same time. And then this part of Revelation is happening at the same time. So you have the same thing happening, just repeated. The trouble with that is what is overlapping what, right? Well, here are some of the the, the strengths for these views sequentially. Why would you like to read it that way? Well, it seems natural to assume that the order of events is a timeline, doesn't it? You read it and you expect, we read the Gospels and we expect it to make sense after Jesus did this, he did this, he did this, right? Uh, You read Revelation, you expect it to be like that. Uh, The judgments are numbered. Remember, there's the first seal, the second seal, the fifth trumpet, the sixth trumpet. Why are they numbered? To suggest order, 
And third, the judgments grow in intensity. So the seals were like, okay, people are hungry. There's wars. That's kind of normal. The trumpets, okay, there's a mountain on fire crashing into a sea, and a third of the sea is destroyed. That's cataclysmic. And then we get to the bowl judgments later, and the sun's literally scorching people with boils. That's different. (laughs) It, It grows in intensity as you go through the book. So that would suggest a sequence. Um, Why would you look at it in parallel? Well, here's your other camp now. And I think that you might find that this is equally adequate. It's not unusual for prophecy to tell itself in overlapping layers, parallel, start over. Example, the book of Daniel. Daniel had in chapter 2 the vision of the statue. You guys remember this? Maybe from Sunday school, if not recently in some study, or you're reading. Um, the, the head of gold, the, the, bre- the breast of silver, bronze, and iron mixed with clay, and so forth, right? Um, and then the rock comes and smashes the statue, and we're told that these are four kingdoms, and they're going to be crushed by the kingdom of Christ that comes. Well, chapter 7 in Daniel tells the same message in a different vision. Instead of a statue with four pieces of metal, there are four beasts that rise out of the sea. And these four beasts are conquered by the Son of Man, nonetheless, Jesus' favorite title for himself. And he comes to the Ancient of Days, like in Revelation, nonetheless, and receives from him the kingdom, which it says will have no end. Uh, So there in Daniel, we have a parallel. One vision here. This vision over here isn't after the fact. It's retelling the same vision with different imagery. So it's not unusual in Scripture to see that happen. We could be seeing that in Revelation. Okay, these things happen. Let's start over. New, New pictures, but same message. Another reason for parallel. After these things does not refer... I didn't mean to, oh, I should have taken this on my notes. Oh, well, I said it. Uh, after these things, only orders the visions John saw. So um, we see him often say, after these things I saw. And we think, oh, that means sequentially, after this I saw. But actually, all it means is the next vision. It doesn't say that this vision had to happen after the one before it. It just means this was the next vision I saw, not in a time frame necessarily. Um, chapter 11, like we just read, makes a very strong case that the book, like that Jesus is back right here in chapter 11 and history is over and his kingdom has begun. So then what you would say is chapter 12 has to be starting over and retelling the revelation vision from the beginning again. So in other words, chapters one, loosely one through 11 are part one chapters 12 to his return again are the retelling, like in Daniel, one vision, another vision, but same thing. That is possible. Um, notice this, that the seven bowls we'll get to in the future, and the seven trumpets, which we have just finished, hit the same exact subjects on the same exact number. I don't know if you've noticed that before. Example, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, both of them, the first one strikes the earth. The second one strikes the sea. The third one strikes the rivers. The fourth one strikes the heavens. The fifth one strikes humans. And the sixth one deals with the Euphrates River. All of a sudden, you're like, hmm, is it retelling the same vision? It's pretty orderly if it is. And then my final point on this is, you notice how we just ended in verse 19. 
There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake. Well, that happens at the end of the seventh trumpet. And if you will go ahead to chapter 16, verse 18, it happens at the end of the bold judgments too. 16, verse 18. The seventh angel just pours out his um, bowl, says it is done, verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. Hmm. So, now that we're utterly more confused than ever before, because both sound really good, we'll move on. (laughs) Um, All that to say, though, I actually do... I side with, I think, in the seventh trumpet... We have the last. This is it. Jesus has now come. The pronouncement, the royal pronouncement's been read. He's bringing the kingdom. It's over. The judgment is happening. What we get to next week in chapter 12 is we're going to have, we're going to start over. But what John's going to do is he's going to emphasize different things now. He's going to emphasize the beast, for example. We haven't met the beast yet. Briefly was mentioned. Um, so the Antichrist, well, he, he's going to have a different emphasis now. And so he's going to look at the same events through the lens now of what is the Antichrist doing in all of this chaos? And it's going to climax with the fall of his city, Babylon. So, so the, there you have that. Um, let's go through some technical notes on this verse real quick. There's just about three things I want to point out, and then we'll wrap up on the third one, much more lengthy. The first is this. Uh, you notice in verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was and who is to come. So further complicating the whole thing that we were just talking about. The New King James is the only translation, and the King James, that says, and who is to come. Other translations just say who is and who was. Why is that significant? Well, (laughs) two Bibles are reading slightly differently. That's significant. But secondly, because if you're reading it who is and who was, it sounds like Jesus has come and the story's over. If you're reading who is and who was and who is to come, it sounds like we're just simply seeing a preview of what's going to happen at the end of Revelation. So that's why that's significant. Why do they read differently? To make a very complex subject as simple as possible. You have two camps um, of manuscripts. Okay, so we have like our Bible is a translation of the Greek, right? And the Greek is on manuscripts that have been copied forever and ever from the very original ones. And there's tons of them, tons. Well, there's two camps. There's one camp that says, we favor what the majority of the manuscripts say. That's the New King James. The other camp says, we favor the oldest manuscripts. In other words, the ones that you can get the closest to the original as possible, because it eliminates any chance of copy error. The problem is, these guys over here, the oldest manuscripts, aren't very big in number. But over here, you have a large sample, but they're a little bit newer. And so then you're basically balancing this. What's more important, having older documents or having a vast majority in agreement? 
So the New King James favored with vast majority. So they copy those texts. Most modern translations favored oldest manuscripts. So now why you have a difference in this passage? It's very simple. The majority manuscripts said they added and who is to come. The oldest ones omitted who is to come. So all you're seeing is your Bible translators picked which group of manuscripts to translate from. That's why the difference. Every time there's a difference, your Bible makes a note of it. It's not some like conspiracy trying to cover up errors. It's very open about it. It's very far and few in between. This is one, and you'll notice it does not in any way significantly alter the message of Revelation. So there you have why that is. So all of you who like to stay up late reading books that make you frown, you are appeased. (laughs) Now, verse 18 is interesting. Verse 18, uh, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Here is John in classic style, grabbing from the Old Testament to describe the future. This is from Psalm chapter 2. If you are not familiar with Psalm chapter 2 and you love end time stuff, you need to know Psalm chapter 2. Which Psalm did I say? Oh, good. You need to know that one because it is so, it is often quoted. In fact, I'm going on a limb. I'm trying to recall from my memory. I think it's the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And it is very much so in Revelation. It was quoted in the letters that we had already read. It's going to be quoted in the future. It's quoted right here. The nations raged is the first part of Psalm chapter 2. The psalm opens up with, why do the nations rage? And the, the kings of the earth take counsel, against, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Do you know what anointed is in Hebrew? Messiah, which in Greek is Christ. So Psalm 2 is a very, very early psalm about the Messiah. And there it's a picture of the nations coming together against God's Messiah, wanting to rebel against him and to break his rule off of them. Well, that seems familiar in our world. (laughs) Then the psalm says in verse 4, but he who sits in the heavens, well, that's familiar from Revelation 4, the one seated on the throne. But he who sits in the heavens chooses thumbnails. Nope. Paces. Nope. He laughs. What are these maggots trying to do? (laughs) He laughs. Then he makes this announcement. I have my own king. I'm paraphrasing. I have my own king. I've set him on Mount Zion, Jerusalem. Today I have begotten you. Well, the New Testament uses that phrase all the time for Jesus. They quote saying, Jesus is the one whom God has begotten. And then it goes on to say, I will give, ask of me of the nations and I will give them to you and I will give you a rod of iron to dash the rebels with. And then the closure, please come and worship this king, not the kings of the world. So what he's doing is he's alluding to that psalm. So when you read, the nations raged, but your wrath came, you're supposed to think Psalm 2 and have that entire psalm filter into what's being said here. In other words, then, this is the moment when God's laughter, he's finally having the last laugh, and he's putting his king on the throne in Zion. 
And now it's time. Are you going to kiss the sun or are you going to be smashed with the rod of iron? So those are the two things I said. Three, so here's the third. It's in the end of verse 18. It's a very long verse if you didn't see that. At the very end it says, So the time has come. Well, I'm just going to read it. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. My, have we glossed over that section. We think often of those who are doomed to judgment are people who kidnap children, people who produce pornography, Hitler. I was going to say a political joke, but I probably shouldn't. Um, <laughs> We, we, think of, we think of evil, and it should really take you back that the one judgment, the one sin labeled here, I'm not saying this is the only sin people be judged for, but the one that should strike us that we usually don't take credit for, we don't take into account in our moral ledgers, is that Jesus is going to judge the destroyers of the earth. That took me back, you know, many years ago when I read that. Because I grew up, and this is absolutely no fault to any single person, church, or view of eschatology. But I grew up with the attitude of, I'm told we're going to be raptured any minute now. Who cares if the earth is warming? Who cares if the polar bears don't have anywhere to live? Uh, who cares if we're polluting the air? And, and I grew, I think it was my, I don't remember, some influence I had. Um, the attitude of, oh, you see that Toyota Prius right there? They must have moved from San Francisco. <laughs> and the old tree huggers. And, um, look, I, I know it's, it's sort of a... It's, it's, it's definitely a hot topic right now uh, because Obama advanced um, in the big Paris th- meeting with all the world leaders. He advanced the whole uh, reducing carbon emissions and he signed America to these contracts and you know, everyone's getting together on this. And then Trump has been openly saying, I am going to just destroy what Obama did with that. Who cares about carbon emissions? Let's just build industry and continue to progress. Uh, so it's a bit of a, we look at this as a political issue versus Republicans and Democrats. Uh, but I want us to look at this as a Christian issue through the lens of theology and the Bible regardless of if you're a Democrat or a Republican, if you're red or blue. So um, what I'm going to do is not make a case for climate change or a case against climate change. I think the vast majority of the world agrees climate change is real. The climate's changing. But where we disagree is who's responsible for climate change. 
Is it big nations like China and America producing fossil fuels and all that stuff, burning fossil fuels? Or is this just simply what nature does, like a huge pendulum, and it just swings back and forth? And we're only living long enough to see it swing one way, and it could easily correct itself. So this is not my goal, is to make you choose a side on that. I know you guys are convinced already, and you've all done your homework. But I do want to talk about... Um, there's, some, there's a discipline called biblical theology. It doesn't mean it's the only theology that's biblical. Unfortunately, they've named it biblical theology versus syst- syst- thank you systematic theology. Um, and what it does is it basically... It does two things, but just one of them is that it takes themes from Scripture and looks at the theme through each book of the Bible, uh, just kind of as it unfolds, where systematic theology just kind of puts it all in outlines and gives you this, here's what it is. Um, so I want to kind of just take us through this, this, what does the Bible do with creation? Just look at it through that lens from Genesis to where we are here. Okay, so I'm going to do this hopefully super quick. So in the beginning, of course, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he makes man, Adam, humanity. What we so miss, because we don't read in Hebrew, we read in English, is that there is a massive play on words in Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis 1 tells us that God created, and it has the royal image of God's a king, he's commanding things, and things are going to place. He makes humans to rule, have dominion over the earth on his behalf. Royal picture. Psalm, Genesis chapter 2 takes on a priestly picture of creation. So now God is uh, building a temple. That's the world. And he makes humans to be his priests. It's just a different picture. So it's retelling the creation. Speaking of parallelism, (laughs) it's retelling the creation through a different lens. And in that lens, it's very interesting. In in Genesis 2, it says that God uh, formed the man in Hebrew. It's Adam. So we get Adam. He formed the Adam of the dust from the ground. Hebrew, Adama. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. What do you see there? You have ground, earth, Adama. It's Adam with an A-H on the end. And out of that, he brings Adam without the A-H. So what you have in the Hebrew text is a literal humans come out of the earth. And so there's this, from the very beginning, there's an intricate tie, not just, oh yeah, we were put on the earth, so of course we're related to the earth in some way. No, in, in, in Hebrew theology, humanity and the earth are the same substance. In fact, the earth birthed humanity. And God then breathed animation into the human. And so throughout the Bible, we're going to see this very intricate and delicate balance between the man, the human, and the planet. So we then go on to see that God gives the humans dominion over this planet. We see they come from it, so they're going to rule it. It's, it's, I hate... Well, I'm not going to say it. So um, he then tells them in Genesis 2, he puts them in the garden, Genesis 2.15, to work it and keep it. In other words, this is to protect it, to serve it. These are priestly terms, protect, uh, to work and keep. Use the priests in the temple. They're to do in the creation what priests did in the temple. You were careful in the temple. You know the high priest wore that rope 
and the bells so that in case he wasn't careful, they could drag him out. Now the one bites the dust. <laughs> Adam becomes a dama. Um, so it, there was this real need to serve and protect the creation. And that's the image that we have. And so there was this mission for us to do that. But when Adam sides with the serpent in Genesis 3, suddenly he forfeits this role of protecting creation and he becomes a tyrant over the creation. And that's when we see the scroll now in the hand of the one who sits on the throne. And it's been that way till Jesus died and rose. So Adam forfeits this responsibility. Uh, the creation then goes into this downward spiral because humanity no longer has the ability to rule it. Um, so much so that Romans 8.19 tells us that creation is groaning, waiting for Jesus' return. Because the creation, Paul says, is in bondage. Well, who put it there? You? Me? I mean, yes, Adam and Eve, but we still do it. Look at all of our... There's more concrete in Southern California than there are trees, it seems like. Not up here, of course, but down there. So the question that John asked, right? Remember heaven asked as the, as the one who's seated on the throne has a scroll, who's worthy to open the scroll? And there was, nobody was standing up until Jesus did. And the Old Testament's answering this question, who's worthy to rule the creation? Noah wasn't. Noah was given the clean slate. Here you go. Here's a kingdom of animals. I want you to give you a, a world full, free of sin. You're going to repopulate it with these animals. And the first thing we see Noah doing is he's naked in his tent, drunk on the grapes he grew. But worse than that is that he and his descendants end up by Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. God says, spread out and do the original creation commission and take care of the planet. Instead, they congregate. They build a massive city, urbanization. And everybody knows that urbanization is torture and murder to the creation. So we see right away, they're not taking care of the creation, not serving it, they're not protecting it. They're stripping it of its resources to build this massive city and tower. And God judges it. Abraham and Israel weren't worthy to take the scroll, for God gave them a fresh start, and he gave them his law. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, because we usually don't read the law as a very interesting part of our scripture reading, but in the law, there are interesting laws like this. Uh, when your enemy's ox is falling under a burden, you're to help the ox. doesn't say anything about your enemy. You're to help the ox, because the ox doesn't deserve the burden. Uh, the land will vomit its inhabitants out because of their sins. What? The land is going to vomit the people out of it. Uh, there's ethics for mother-baby animal relations. You're not to kill a mother and its baby on the same day. You're not to take a hen's eggs while the hen is there. You have to make sure the hen's looking away. All these kind of ethical decrees. Uh, Deuteronomy 20 tells, God tells them when they go into warfare, usually what, it, what armies would do is they'd come and they'd strip the land around the city of everything to build their siege ramps, and to deprive food of the people. Well, God tells Israel not to cut down every tree. And it actually says, what, is a tree a man that it deserves to die? No, God cares for the trees. He says, don't cut them down. He says, only cut down the trees that don't bear fruit for your siege ramps. Um, Proverbs 12.10 tells us that a righteous man regards the life of his animals. 
You can tell a person's relationship with God by how they treat God's creation. Psalms 24.1, the earth is the Lord's. Many other verses go with that. Uh, Psalm 147 talks about God's intimate care for creation, that he even feeds the young ravens when they cry. Psalm 104, actually that might be Psalm, sorry, that's Psalm 104. Psalm 147 and Psalm 104, though, both talk about his intimate involvement. But then here's the kicker. The Sabbath day commanded in several places in the law to give, yes, the humans a day off, but then Deuteronomy says the animals a day off, but then the Sabbath year, every seventh year, they're to give the land a year off. You're not to overwork the earth and to continue to strip it of resources. Well, guess what happens is that Israel never keeps the Sabbath. They, the land, vomits them into Babylon, the exile. And this is what Second Chronicles 36.21 says. Second Chronicles 36.21. They went into exile until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. In other words, part of the reason that God kicks Israel out of the promised land is because they wouldn't give the land a Sabbath. So God said, fine, I will give it a Sabbath and kick you out of it. Does God not care about his earth? Pretty clear just in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus comes along And he is modeled as the Adam who does what Adam did not do. And he comes along and he commands the wind and the seas, calming a storm, walking on water. He multiplies bread and fish, feeding a crowd with a little bit and giving them a lot. And then he also tells the disciples how to fish and they gather a lot of fish. He transforms water into wine and colts into rideable donkeys into a boisterous, obnoxious crowd in which a colt shouldn't be ridden into with control. Uh, He restores the human body from disease, from deformity, from demons, and from death. Ultimately, his death on the cross earns him the scroll. So he reverses the human trend of tyranny over the earth, and he models servanthood, as he says in Mark 10, 35, I have come to serve and give my life a ransom. So he then receives the scroll from the one who sits on the throne. And we are told, if you don't remember, you can go back later and look at it. But it says that when he took the scroll, worship erupted, and in chapter 5, verse 10, that they shall reign with him on the earth. So this is all about creation restoration. Um, jot down Isaiah 35, 5 through 7. Isaiah 35, 5 through 7. That is tying the healing of humans with the healing of the earth. The lame will walk. The deserts will have water flowing in them. This is significant because Jesus does the healing part of humans, implying that when his kingdom comes, the earth part will be healed. So there's a connection between, again, humans and the earth. Adam and Adama. That's Isaiah 35, 5 through 7. All right. The reason I take the efforts to show us what the Bible says in a very quick crash course about the creation, about the world, about the planet, is because I want us to be Christians who look at the world as God's world and who are able to enjoy the planet as we were meant to enjoy the planet. And it, maybe it shocks you, maybe it doesn't, but creation and humans are meant to go together. 
Americans spend more time in their cars than they do outside. The average American. So we don't get that, obviously. If you live in the city, the only trees you see are the ugly ones planted on the side of the road that are making the concrete come up because of the roots. (laughs) Or maybe the vicus or whatever they're called in your grandma's house. (laughs) So... I'm going to summarize as best as I can an article that I read called This Is Your Brain on Nature. (laughs) I want you to imagine a therapy that has no side effects, was readily available, could improve your cognitive functioning at zero cost. You don't even need insurance. It exists, and it's called Interacting with Nature. That's from a scientist, Stephen Kaplan. <laughs> Stephen Kaplan. So here's three points of what nature does for us. Number one, spending time in nature relieves stress and mental fatigue. Scientifically proven, spending time in nature reduces stress and mental fatigue. There's what's called direct attention, which we do all the time at work and when we're busy. Direct attention is when you choose voluntarily to focus on something, and to do that, you have to intentionally block other things out. The problem is, is that when you do this long enough, you burn out, you stress out, and you get tired and sluggish. Well, there's indirect attention or involuntary attention, which is what happens when you just go on a walk through the trees on a little trail. You're noticing things, but you don't have to block things out. And science actually shows that forest walks can, dis- can decrease the stress of the hormone cortisol by 16%. That's your stress hormone. It can decrease it by 16%, blood pressure by 2%, and a 4% drop in heart rate just by walking through the forest. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to drive to do that. Um, So as a result, nature can improve creativity up to 50%. That was part of science. So science, uh, science shows that nature can give us that detox in our mind. And listen, we're not very good at the Sabbath because we're not Jewish. But you need to rest your mind. And TV does not do it. It doesn't. Blue light rays do not replace the green of trees. You need to spend time. Again, you don't even have to like, drive. Just take advantage of where you live. Second benefit. Nature makes us nicer and calmer. Science proves this. So, according to neuroscience research in Korea, volunteers were shown pictures of urban scenes and nature scenes. Well, when the volunteers viewed the urban scenes, their brains showed more blood flow in the amygdala, right? (laughs) Which is the part of the brain that processes fear and anxiety. Whoa. But when the natural scenes were shown, when the volunteers saw the natural scenes, it lit up the part of the brain. I'm just going to skip the words. It lit up the part of the brain with the areas associated with empathy and altruism. If you don't know, altruism is just that good human natureness, kindness. Wow. So just pictures can stimulate either stress and fear or empathy and altruism. 
So first, nature, uh, spending time in nature relieves stress and mental fatigue. Second benefit, nature makes us nicer and calmer. Third benefit, nature can teach us to detach from negative emotions. Nature can teach us to detach from negative emotions. In one study, researchers scanned the brains of volunteers after they walked for 90 minutes, some in the city and some in nature. So a test, 90-minute walk. This group did it in the city, this group did it in nature. The latter, the group that walked through nature, decreased activity in the subgenual prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain tied to depressive rumination. So recap, those that walked through the forest, their brain reduced its activity in depressive rumination. In other words, they stopped thinking about the depressive things of life, and they got their mind on something else. Uh, but, uh, and then uh, the same group that walked through nature also reported that they beat themselves up less often just by walking in nature. So, conclusion, no wonder Jesus and the Psalms drew much of their illustrations from nature. In fact, this blew me away. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, when Jesus says, do not worry, do you remember how he told us not to worry? I would have, you know, I'm a pastor, right? So someone says, I'm worried. I would say, I would be like the doctor, prescribe them these scriptures. Jesus did not prescribe scriptures to deal with your anxiety. He said, look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and see how they live. That is your stress and anxiety detox from the mouth of Jesus confirmed by science. Hallelujah. Amen. (laughs) Okay, so there's a lot more I want, but um, we should take a hike. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So real quick applications we can do. One, take a hike. Two, look at something until you begin to notice new details never before seen. Worship team, you can come up. Look at something until you begin to notice new details never before seen. How many times have you ever looked at a tree and just stared at it until you began to marvel over things you never noticed about a tree before? It's actually incredibly calming. Three, listen to the wind and hear what it whispers. We hear the wind all the time. We just had a wind hurricane this last. But have you ever listened to what the tree, the, the leaves are doing in the wind? Have you ever listened to the tones, the rhythm? Listen to what it's saying. Four, sink your bare feet into organic earth. Sink your bare feet into organic earth. I'm serious. We are one of the few people ever in history to walk so much without ever making contact with the planet Earth. Think about it. You walk in shoes, you walk on concrete, we walk on carpet, we're in our cars. How many times do your bare feet ever touch the planet? It is, science actually suggests that it's therapeutic to do so. And then five, watch a sunrise or a sunset. Before there was a written word, the first Bible was nature. Paul said so in Romans 1.20. It is the picture book to this book. Brothers and sisters, I just want you to care for it. I don't care your political view on climate change. I just want you to love God's work and realize who you are in relation to that and that it is there for us to be healthier and more godly and spiritual.